Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Our news this week focuses on the prisoners who are fighting California's wildfires for as little as a dollar an hour while actually fighting fires. For reference, the salary of a full-time civilian firefighter starts at about $40,000 a year. Several hundred inmates in California are some of the first responders to the fires. In total, about 3,800 male and female inmates are fighting fires in California. They constitute around 19% of the state's firefighters. Their low salaries save taxpayers $124 million a year. Sandra Welsh is an inmate firefighter in California who states that the program has at least given some sense of worth to her time in prison. But another inmate, Lasagna Edwards, describes the pay as ridiculous and says, quote, There are some days where we are worn down to the core. This isn't that different from slave conditions. We need to get paid more for what we do, unquote. Moreover, for many inmates, the experience they gain is little use to them once they're released. L.A. County, for example, has a policy barring convicted felons of serving as civilian firefighters. In other words, California sees inmates only fit to do the work when they are being paid next to nothing to do it. We spoke with a member of Critical Resistance on this issue earlier this week. My name is Mohammed Sheikh. I'm the communications director at Critical Resistance. And we're an organization, a national organization, that seeks to abolish the prison industrial complex the fires that have hit, you know, the, the Santa Rosa area, Napa, Sonoma, um, up in Northern California, um, you could say about 30% of the firefighters that are currently fighting those fires and working to contain them um, are prisoners. A lot of people, um, in, a lot of imprisoned people actually, you know, opt um to, and want to go into this kind of program because it allows them to not be in prison, right? Um, to get this kind of training, to have this this kind of opportunity. They're fed a lot better. You know, they don't have the same kinds of really kind of high security uh, restrictions and conditions that they face inside. And so for a lot of people, you know, going to fight fire is actually much more preferable and desirable than being locked up in a cage. It has, you know, unfortunately focused on the uh, lower security prisoners, but we would want to see that be expanded even further. In terms of the pay, you know, they're paid um, very low wages, I mean, relatively speaking to how much you'd imagine a free world firefighter would make. Generally, they make ranging around a dollar an hour or so. In some cases, two dollars a day might be what they end up making. Um, so it's it's very low wages. In terms of the you know conditions, it's obviously the same conditions that any fighter fighter would face. It's very dangerous. The you know the disparity in wages is something that um, across the board for any kind of work that prisoners do is much 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 less um, than actually being paid a living wage or a wage that would be really kind of meaningful. And one thing that's also really deplorable is that a lot of the prisoners, actually all of the prisoners that are are able to participate in this program are um, what they call, you know, lower security prisoners. 
so that don't have you know violent offenses or charges that they that they've been convicted with or are serving time for and so a lot of these people would be released relatively soon after their participation in the program however there's been arguments made by those invested in keeping people in prison arguing that we can't reduce the, the prison population because we won't have access to this really cheap labor pool to fight fires and that that'll cost the state a lot of money and that's completely absurd and being able to participate in the program should not at all warrant you know prisoners not being released for us when we advocate for programs for prisoners to be able to have inside that will ultimately also either expand opportunities or the conditions for them to be able to release, be released more quickly, we advocate for those programs to be accessible to all people inside and not just a certain class of people based on you know classification or what level of charges they had. So the division between only allowing a certain class of prisoners is something that we would oppose and have opposed in the past. In terms of the speci like this specific program, we don't necessarily see it as different in terms of programming for prisoners than other work programs that prisoners have available to them. And I know that, you know, as shocking as it may seem, you know, that 30% of the firefighters fighting the prison, uh, fighting the fires right now are prisoners. It's also, you know, this is something that the, the prisoners are, are actually wanting to do to get out. And so for us, it kind of just speaks to how bad it must be to, to be in prison and to be in, in that kind of really repressive condition that you would rather literally go jump in fire or fight fire over being locked up. I mean, me personally have known people that have done this program and have been a while being imprisoned. And, you know, they've shared, you know, similar things to what I raised around uh, how having given the opportunity to be outside, to be in a, a situation where it's much less restrictive, where you're, you know, working with people that are relying on each other in a way that the prison system actually works against those very relationships and that kind of practice, right? And it's not to say that we shouldn't absolutely be critical, and this person was raising this as well, that it's not that we shouldn't be absolutely critical and still be completely against the prison regime and, and CDCR, that they're not doing us a favor by allowing us to participate in this kind of program, but that when we get to the real issue, you know, at the heart of it, is that we really need to start reducing the prison population or having this be something that doesn't lead to the further criminalization of people. So, for example, a lot of people in, uh, across a lot of jurisdictions in California, people that participate in this kind of program, they receive the same trainings, so like a one-month training that any person looking to participate would get. The difference is, is that once, pe once these people are released, they're not able to be hired as firefighters in a lot of jurisdictions because of restrictions on in employment that, that bar people that have criminal convictions to be able to get a job. And so, you know, a lot of a lot of the, the work of all of us are none. 
to ban the box, for instance, that's the kind of thing that, you know, will actually make some concrete gains where having a program like this can actually lead to somebody having meaningful work after they're released. And now, we finish the second part of Elizabeth Hinton's lecture on the rise of mass incarceration. In her talk, she traces the creation and rise of mass incarceration as a strategy of America's ruling class. Her historical research, which culminated in a book last year called From the War on Poverty to the War on Crime, demonstrates that the explosion of prison construction predated any rise in crime, but was instead a response to the spread of social unrest and black protest. You can hear the first half of her lecture in last week's episode of KiteLine. 1969, states allocated 13.5% of their law enforcement block grant funding to corrections. By 1970, that figure had more than doubled to 30%, and some states chose to dedicate half of their federal funding to their prison system. In monetary terms, the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, which was the grant-making arm of the Department of Justice established by the Safe Streets Act, uh, known as the LEAA, it spent a relatively modest $2 million for corrections and prison programs in 1969. Following Nixon's call for the long-range plan in 1970, that figure rose to $58 million. By 1971, Part E funding had increased state spending to $178 million on corrections improvement programs, half of which was allocated in the form of block grants and half of which was, gr was granted um, as discretionary funding. By 1972, this figure had ballooned to nearly $250 million, representing a 12,400% increase on correction spending in three years, in the three years since the long-range plan was formulated, from $2 million in 1969 to $250 million by 1972. And by the time the contradiction between Nixon's pursuit of law and order and the lawlessness and criminal behavior rampant in his own administration finally ended his political career, total prison expenditures had more than doubled from $1.4 billion in 1969 to $3.2 billion in 1974. So this is well before we think about mass incarceration and, and the expansion of the carceral state typically. Even as Nixon's impeachment cut short his second term, the central punitive strategies that his administration developed took on a life of their own. By late 1976, nearly $3 billion had already been spent on 430 new facilities nationwide. And in turn, every single prison bed called for the by the long range plan came to be occupied within the federal system um, by a black or Latino inmate. Actually, the federal system took in more black and Latino Americans than available beds. And the figures of that are in the book. We could talk about in the Q&A. Once these prison, prisoners of color joined the federal system, they were typically kept a year and a half longer than their white counterparts for drug-related drug crimes and several months longer for most other charges. So if the Bureau had worked to eradicate these sentencing disparities, it would have freed up hundreds of cells instead of merely constructing more. Outside of federal prisons, the influence of the Nixon administration's penal policies and construction names it imposed on states facilitated historic rates of black incarceration, north and south, in cities like Philadelphia, where this man is being tested by a researcher. The percentage of black prisoners in the county jail increased from 50% in 1970 to 95% in 1974, so the number of black suspects nearly doubled in the four years after the long-range plan hit the ground. In the southern states, where various forms of confinement had profoundly shaped the conditions of black life for three centuries, 
The expansion of the prison system offered a viable means both to retain segregation and reassert control. African Americans were less than a third of the population in Florida and Alabama, but they slept in the great majority of the state's prison beds by the 1970s. And with the largest percentage of African Americans in the country, Mississippi had a low crime rate in the face of popular stereotypes about black criminality, but a relatively high rate of incarceration in this period. So how did penal authorities seek to control the black and brown prisoners who were increasingly flooding the nation's um, system as a consequence of the targeted police and surveillance programs of the war on crime, their collective confinement rendering the threat of rebellion ever-present? With public racism no longer acceptable after the civil rights movement, the language of crime and these new categories of offenders served as a discourse through which national policymakers could discuss race without evoking race explicitly. Nixon officials believed that penal institutions were ill-equipped to deal with and rehabilitate this, quote, new class of inmates who, in the words of federal officials and policymakers, were were especially violent, aggressive, and disturbed, and posed a a vexing problem to order inside prisons. In their view, these new inmates, quote unquote, were incapable of responding to rehabilitative attempts um, and, and were a humongous problem. So... In the words of John, Attorney General John Mitchell in 1971, as he was promoting the administration's strategies, he put it this way. He said, quote, we must be prepared for this new wave of offenders coming into the prison system, ready not just with added beds and benches, but ready to make the most of an opportunity to reach a larger number of offenders with modern corrections techniques. Yet incarcerated people weren't getting more violent and disturbed. In fact, assaults against guards and other prisoners declined in the early 1970s. They were just getting blacker and browner. Framing the underlying socioeconomic issues in pathological terms, Nixon officials believed prison authorities could not effectively, quote, deal with and attempt to rehabilitate this most difficult category of prisons, prisoners. The modern prisons the Nixon administration sought to establish would include separate facilities for, quote, Hardcore criminals who require close supervision and particularly secure quarters, as the president wrote to Attorney General Mitchell. Thus, following the long-range plan, the Department of Justice established the National Clearinghouse of Corrections to remake the physical carceral landscape. Architects and planners received lucrative federal contracts to design cell blocks that would be more suitable for larger penal populations serving longer sentences. The Clearinghouse recruited faculty from the Department of Architecture at the University of Illinois to create new prison designs that would enhance general security while simultaneously fostering living conditions that would be more appropriate for this kind of these prisoners serving these extremely long sentences. The sociologists and architects involved produced an 800-page manual for prison planners that the LEAA used to guide states in designing 300 new facilities and overhauling old ones. While aiming to improve the security of prisons in general, these consultants hope to upgrade the design of correctional facilities to make the experience of incarceration more humane. So the consultants encourage the substitution of hollow blocks for bars, the glazing of cinder block walls, and the replacement of long corridors with winding pathways in, in hundreds of American prisons to foster an improved psychological state among prisoners. Meanwhile, as the long-range plan spawned the creation of more than 100,000 new jobs in the punishment sector, federal programs trained a new cadre of staff and guards who, in theory, would be more sympathetic to the needs of prisoners in a changing correctional climate. But equally important were the measures the federal government supported that involved new classification and prison management techniques, which policymakers framed as rehabilitation efforts. 
Although the long-range plan mentioned the need to create community-based alternatives to incarceration, officials did not include specific models to stimulate the implementation of these smaller and cost-effective facilities. And just as a side note, one we might be able to discuss further in our discussion, the real rehabilitation efforts, the community-based detention centers, halfway houses, employment programs, and the like, were increasingly handed over to the private sector during this period. Um, so in embracing the the expansion of the prison system and the incarceration of violators for long periods as the only effective means to protect society, Carlson and other Nixon officials believed that prisoner rehabilitation was completely impr- impractical. Um, as Carlson, remember, he's the director of the Bureau, argued, the idea, quote, the idea that violent offenders can be rehabilitated by some, by some combination of vocational counseling and other programs inside or outside an institution has yet to be demonstrated, end quote. So instead, the Nixon administration prioritized the construction of maximum security facilities. In the more punitive maximum security climate, which essentially operated on the basis of a permanent lockdown, prisoners were permitted to leave their cells for only very short periods of time, usually um, an hour or two per day. And of course, this is all going down in the context of widespread hunger strikes, fire setting, and formal and informal protests that increased within prisons during the Nixon administration's early planning stages and as the rebellion of Attica in September 1971 made national headlines. And this widespread resistance made the apparent need for maximum security facilities all the more pressing for Nixon officials. So in practice, the rehabilitation measures that Nixon officials played lip service to were less about providing social services or reintegration back into larger society and more about regulating prisoners who were increasingly committed for long stays in prison. In other words, behavior modification rather than rehabilitation became the ultimate goal for corrections. At the Federal Medical Center in Springfield, Missouri, for example, the Special Treatment and Rehabilitative uh, Training Program, or START, placed groups of violent prisoners in complete isolation and subjected them to a lengthy series of experiments. These tests included included shackling inmates to their steel beds by their arms and legs for days at a time, forcing them to remain in the leather straps and leather chains even as they ate, and humiliating them as they performed basic bodily functions. Framed by authorities and planners as, quote, psychologically beneficial to the prisoners, the degradation, pain, and drug testing measures the START program inflicted came dangerously close to torture. The Bureau eventually closed the Springfield facility in the spring of 1974 as a result of an ACLU lawsuit pending against the START program. But that summer, the the United States District Court of Missouri ruled that that such programs violated the Constitution. And the the purpose of the program was, quote, not to develop behavior of an individual so that he would be able to conform his behavior to standards of society at large, but to make him a better, more manageable prisoner. So following the closure of Springfield, prison planners uh, designed rehabilitation and treatment measures throughout the federal and state systems that were more about regulating inmates who were increasingly committed for long stays in prison than anything else. One of the 400 behavior modification initiatives the Department of Justice funded in 20 different states after 1974 was the Contingent Management Program at the Virginia State Penitentiary in Richmond. As the operations manual of the program stated, the goal was to modify the behavior of, quote, troublesome inmates to discipline them so they could be, quote, returned to the beneficial influence of correctional programs. 
So the way this program worked is that seven days a week, a white uh, psychology student visited the maximum security tier in the segregated C building of the state prison, armed with a clipboard and a checklist. The inspector was to ascertain whether the mostly black prisoners in the unit had tidied, tidied their five foot by nine foot cells, if they had made their beds, and if they were willing to engage in polite conversation. And for each bit of approved behavior, the incarcerated person would be awarded a point, which was punched into a wallet size uh, green credit card, like the coffee punch cards that we use today, to be later, cashed in later for commissary items or Polaroid snapshots with family members during visitation. A prisoner who scored well and who otherwise behaved well may advance to the next stage and move to a lower security field camp. Many recognize the contingent management program for what it was. It's subtle coercion, one of the participants, Antonio, remarked. They use child psychology on you. You be good and we'll give you a candy bar. Even the warden at Virginia State dubbed it, quote, a Mickey Mouse program for 10-year-olds. You think you're gaming on the man, Leon, another prisoner said, but the man's gaming on you. Yet for other incarcerated men, the program did offer the only hope for at least a more comfortable stay in the prison and a way out of the maximum security unit, and at best, the prospect of an early release. Management programs in Springfield, Richmond, and elsewhere unfolded at a time when overcrowding forced authorities to, to resort to the double selling of inmates or holding two prisoners in cells that had originally been intended for one. In many ways, the sheer fact of prison overcrowding, itself a product of the, a product of the policing programs of the war on crime, rendered the subsequent expansion of, the, of prisons a key domestic policy arena. As penal po populations ballooned, even doubling in some places following the long-range plan, the limitations of the federal government's own punitive investments prevented many states from increasing their institutional capacity accordingly, and so prison conditions rapidly deteriorated in the process. So the question at the center of American penal practices for most of the 20th century, and especially with respect to black Americans, and it's kind of re-entered discussions recently with Ava DuVernay's film, but really centered on the, on the contours of the 13th Amendment and the issue of whether or not convicts could be enslaved. But at the dawn of mass incarceration, the central question shifted to the terms of the 8th Amendment and what exactly constituted cruel and unusual punishment. At the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility, one of the maximum security prisons constructed on, under the, the guidance of the Long Range Plan in 1972, double selling quickly became the norm for most prisoners there who were incarcerated for life or for first-degree felonies. Within three years of its opening, the institution had reached 138% capacity. So in 1975, prisoner Kelly Chapman filed a case against the, the institution, arguing that sharing his 32-foot or 32-square-foot cell with another man violated his Eighth Amendment pro uh, protection. So this is, again, is the, um, the single cell, the single federal cell in the early 1970s. So imagine double that in the 1980s, two men living in a cell that size, um, and then quadruple that in the 1990s. So Chapman's case made it all the way to the Supreme Court, which decided in 1981's Rhodes v. Chapman that the conditions at Southern Ohio did not, in fact, constitute cruel and unusual punishment. Notably, Thurgood Marshall offered the only dissenting opinion in this case. The majority ruled that only if prisoners could demonstrate that authorities had subjected them to a wantonly and unnecessary infliction of pain could federal courts take an active role in reforming conditions in state prisons. Although the national government had encouraged the wave of penal construction during the 1970s, the Supreme Court's ruling set a precedent that prevented federal policymakers and the court system from intervening if states fostered inhumane conditions inside prisons. 
When mass incarceration seemed eminent then, national officials empowered prison authorities to use their own discretion in management techniques. Thus, as black and brown Americans entered formal carceral institutions at unprecedented and historic rates, superintendents, wardens, and guards had free reign to pack in more prisoners by any means necessary and shape the conditions of everyday life within those institutions as they saw fit. So I have one last example from this period to sort of end in an irony. Officials had difficulty establishing a sound causal link between incarceration rates and crime, but they knew that unemployment rates correlated directly to incarceration. Federal researchers had discovered in 1974 that unemployment rates had a striking similarity to annual prison admission patterns. So national officials used the direct correlation between unemployment rates and incarceration that had been established by the Congressional Research Service not as a means to advance job creation as a viable way to contain crime. Instead, they drew from these unemployment figures as the basis for further prison population projections. Mixing unemployment and crime rates, the the Bureau of Prisons went on to predict that the federal population would increase by 1,000 prisoners alone in 1975. Preoccupied with population projections and assumptions about black criminality, federal planners neglected the poverty, educational attainment, and other socioeconomic factors that fueled both crime and incarceration, using those same figures as the basis for further projections and the subsequent expansion of the prison system. So as I hope my brief examples have begun to demonstrate, national policymakers used the resources at their disposal to precipitate a new mode of bondage that unleashed devastating consequences for the health of American democracy and for communities of color in particular. On the state level, the construction of new prisons strengthened crime control policies and shaped incarceration trends as these institutions became integrated into the criminal justice system and available for use. As the saying goes, if you build it, they will come. And it's not as if policymakers didn't have alternatives presented to them. When the Bureau of Prisons set out to reconstitute the the system largely in secret, a number of policymakers, criminal justice authorities, and public figures were calling for the termination of prisons and amid a growing prisoners' rights movement and emphasized instead community-based alternatives, um, making the Nixon administration's drive to increase the the nation's penal population all the more aggressive. So listen to this U.S. District Court judge, um, James Doyle, who reflected on a 1972 ruling in Wisconsin, quote, I am persuaded that the institution of prison probably must end. In many respects, it is intolerable within the United States, as was the institution of slavery, equally brutalizing to all involved, equally toxic to the social system, equally subversive of the brotherhood of men, even more costly by some standards, and probably less rational. The National Advisory Commission on Standards and Goals, the National Council on Crime and Delinquency, the ACLU, and the Quakers' Friends Committee shared Doyle's general outlook, calling for a moratorium on prison construction. These reformers believed that prisons had no place in the modern world and hoped they would be rendered extinct by the end of the 20th century. In the absence of complete abolition, the National Council suggested that non-dangerous, non-violent offenders should be decarcerated as the first step towards the ultimate goal. And remember, this was in the 1970s. So these other paths forward, ceasing prison construction altogether, community-based corrections, or a decarceration process might have opened up 
an entirely different set of resources, utilizing the talents of prisoners and social service institutions to create a society that would begin to eliminate the socioeconomic conditions that spawn both violence and crime. The path President Nixon and subsequent administrations chose by the long-range plan and increased policing, harsher sentencing, and increased confinement in general resembled larger historical patterns that compromised the bounds of black freedom after slavery. Much like the, pun the punitive systems that surfaced in the decades following the Civil War, when the contours of citizenship and inclusion expanded in the era of civil rights, citizens of color soon confronted a set of domestic policies that fostered their collective confinement. Grounded in assumptions about race and crime, subsequent administrations accelerated the carceral path forged by Nixon, quadrupling the prison system over a 25-year period. By the end of the 20th century, this long historical process had positioned black and Latino Americans to, com to comprise two-thirds of all prisoners in the land of the, of the free. So the question seems to me, especially in the context of the current administration, is why do we continue to respond to the problems of unemployment, poverty, hunger, subpar housing conditions, and failing schools with more police, more surveillance, more social control, and more prisons? This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.